I'm LNL Insurance, and you're listening to the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. All right, welcome back to episode number 43. Our next case, a 2004 case decided by the Michigan Supreme Court, addresses what is called the same element test regarding successive prosecutions. I think the fact pattern and the procedural history will best highlight what I'm talking about here in People versus Melissa Nutt. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. A home in Lapeer County was burglarized. Now, a quick note here, listeners. There are two counties at play in this case, Lapeer County and Oakland County. So the burglar, the, the burglarization of the home took place in Lapeer County. All right, so just remember the the actual criminal activity took place in Lapeer County. Police officers were able to get a search warrant for a cabin in Oakland County, and when that Oakland County cabin was searched, they found both defendant Nutt and all of the stolen items that she had burglarized from that Lapeer County home that was all found inside the cabin in Oakland County. So, Defendant Nutt was charged in Lapeer County, where she burglarized the home, and she was charged with three counts of second-degree home invasion and three counts of larceny in a building. Then, a month later, Defendant Nutt was subsequently charged in Oakland County for receiving and concealing the stolen items that she stole back in Lapeer County. All right, so again, one more time. She then... After being charged in Lapeer County for the second-degree home invasion and, and larceny of a building, she's then charged in the county where she was found, which was that cabin in Oakland County. Defendant Nutt pleaded guilty in Lapeer County to the second-degree home invasion and the theft of the firearms. But when she was then charged in Oakland County on the receiving and concealing stolen items criminal charge, her attorney motioned for and received a dismissal of those Oakland County criminal charges because it was deemed an improper successive prosecution in violation of the Double Jeopardy Clause 
as found within our Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 15 provision. The defense was able to convince the judge in Oakland County that the prosecutor over in Lapeer County should have had one trial with all of the charges arising from that continuous time sequence that demonstrated a single intent and goal. Specifically, the intent and goal of breaking into a house and stealing those things and hiding those stolen things. Sure, the stolen items from Lapeer County were hiding in Oakland County, but those charges should have been brought during the Lapeer County criminal prosecution. Because Defendant Nutt was tried in Lapeer for just the breaking into the house and just the stealing of the items, to then have a subsequent trial in Oakland for hiding those stolen items, well, that, the defense argued and the trial judge agreed, was a violation of the Double Jeopardy Clause. And the trial judge in Oakland County bought the logic that this defense attorney was presenting. The judge ruled that when a defendant is accused of one or more offenses not having specific intent as an element of that criminal charge, then the test for determining whether they constitute the same offense for the purposes of our Michigan Double Jeopardy Clause is whether the offense involved laws intended to prevent the same harm. The trial judge opined that because defendant in this case was charged with one general intent crime and one specific intent crime, and because those offenses were designed to prevent similar harms, then defendant Nutt could not be tried for receiving and concealing a stolen firearm following her conviction for home invasion. Well, remember what Article 1, Section 15 says. No person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy. So the issue before the Michigan Supreme Court is whether the term, quote-unquote, same offense in our Constitution was properly accorded a meaning that is different from the meaning and intent of the framers of the Michigan Constitution. All right, settle in, kiddies. Grandpa's got some history knowledge to drop on you. The majority of justices in this case, which, by the way, was a 5-2 to two decision, they start off their analysis by stating their goal in understanding the Michigan Constitution is to figure out what the original meaning attributed to the words of that constitutional provision meant to those folks writing the words and those Michigan citizens that were voting on the provisions when they were adopting our 1963 Michigan Constitution. Now, what a novel idea, right? Actually learning what was in the brains of those, writing the words and voting in favor of those words to make the Michigan Constitution? <laughs> the justices said you merely need to apply a rule of common understanding. In applying this principle of construction, the people are understood to have accepted the words employed in a constitutional provision in the sense most obvious to the common understanding, and to have ratified this instrument, meaning our, our, our constitution, in the belief that this was the sense designed to be conveyed. More so, constitutional convention debates and the address to the people are relevant documents in determining the intent of the ratifiers. As far back as 1835, 
the state of Michigan provided for double jeopardy protection in our Constitution, and that language was virtually identical to the United States Constitution's double jeopardy protection. From 1835 through and including 1973, that's almost 100 years in total, the Michigan Constitution understood our double jeopardy protection to mirror that same protection in the United States Constitution. And that understanding is something called the same offense doctrine. But before I delve too deep into the same offense doctrine, let me give you a quick reminder on double jeopardy protections. It protects against a second prosecution for the same offense after acquittal. Two, it protects against a second prosecution for the same offense after conviction. And three, it protects against multiple punishments for the same offense. What we're going to focus on is the idea of having another criminal trial after someone has been found guilty or innocent in an earlier trial. Because that's what happened here to defendant Melissa Nutt. She was found guilty of the home invasion and for stealing the guns. But that happened in Lapeer County. What about the fact that Oakland County wants to subsequently charge her for hiding the guns she stole in Lapeer County and hiding them in her cabin in Oakland County? After all, when she left the house that she broke into, she drove straight to the Oakland County cabin. Isn't that all one transaction? If folks wanted to charge her with helping to hide the stolen guns, why not bring that criminal charge against her the same time that they're charging her with the breaking into the house and the stealing things? Well, around 1890, that's not, that's not a, a misspeak. In 1890, the Michigan Supreme Court had rejected this idea that we have to roll everything into one big ball of wax. They rejected the quote-unquote same transaction approach and instead embraced the same elements test as supplying the definition of what the same offense means. With the same element standard, we must look to what are all of the elements of that crime and if any one aspect of the crime is different than the other, they're not the same elements and they can be charged individually or altogether. All right, all right, let me give you a real life example. A defendant assaulted a husband and wife couple. The prosecution first brought assault charges against the defendant for the beating of the husband. The defendant was found not guilty for that assault. So he was not guilty for the beating of the husband. The prosecutor then brought another criminal assault charge against the defendant, this time for beating the wife of the husband. All right, so it's a married couple. You got a husband, you got a wife. He beats both of them up. The prosecutor charges the defendant for the beating of the husband. He's found not guilty. Prosecutor turns around, now is bringing a criminal charge for the beating of the wife. The defendant was found guilty on that charge, the beating of the wife. It was not a violation of his double jeopardy protection because the court said these were two different people. So the first assault was against the husband, but the second assault was against the wife. So maybe said another way, there is a difference between one volition and one transaction. In, in this instance, uh, with this husband, with this husband and wife assault, it was not the same blow which struck the two people. It was two different blows to the head. Therefore, it was the same transaction, but not the same volition. So what do we mean? He used, the defendant used his fist to repeatedly hit 
the husband. That's one volition. Then pivoting and turning to the wife and beating on the wife, that is a second volition. At the time of our 1963 ratification of our current Michigan Constitution, it had long been established that, number one, our double jeopardy provision in prior constitutions were construed the same as common law, but also and more specifically, number two, the term same offense was defined by application of the federal same elements test. They note the plain and obvious meaning of the term offense means a crime. Thus, the double jeopardy clause protects individuals from being twice put in jeopardy for the same crime, not for the same conduct or action. The next area of analysis the Supreme Court engages in are the reports and notes which came from the 1961 Michigan Constitutional Convention. A delegate at the convention went on record during the debates at the Constitutional Convention and explained that the Supreme Court of Michigan has virtually always held that double jeopardy in Michigan means the same things as the provisions in the federal constitution, and that is what was being put into our updated 1963 constitution. The delegate went on to say, this provision was only modified to bring the text of the Michigan double jeopardy language in line with the law as it now stands in the state of Michigan and in line with the federal constitution. Additionally, the delegate explained the committee wanted to make the constitution read the way the Supreme Court says it actually does read. Our Michigan Supreme Court here in this case says it is clear the drafters understood that they were making no change to the understanding of the law, but that they simply wanted to amend the double jeopardy clause to conform to the previous decisions. Finally, the Michigan Supreme Court looked to a document called, quote-unquote, the Address to the People, and this was an official record of the Constitutional Convention. This document was used to explain to the voters of Michigan why they should vote to ratify the proposed 1963 Michigan Constitution. Our Michigan Supreme Court throws down the gauntlet and says it was clearly wrong to define and equate transaction with the constitutionally written word offense. The 1963 Michigan voters never understood the term offense to comprise all criminal acts arising out of a single criminal episode. That wasn't how it was intended at the 1961 Constitutional Convention, and that's not how it was sold to the 1963 Michigan voter. At the time of the ratification of our current Article 1, Section 15 of the 1963 Michigan Constitution, it was established that the term same offense was defined by reference to the same elements test. And as a recap, what is the same elements test? It is when statutory elements of an offense does or does not overlap with one another. If one particular crime requires proof of a fact that the other crime does not require, then the same elements test fails and each crime can be charged individually. All right, said another way. A conviction or acquittal of one crime does not prevent a subsequent trial upon another crime unless the evidence required to support the second criminal case is the same as the first criminal case. The test is not whether the defendant has already been tried for the same act, but whether he has been put in jeopardy for the same offense. 
A single act may be an offense against two crimes, and if each crime requires proof of an additional fact which the other does not, an acquittal or conviction under crime number one will not prevent the defendant from prosecution and punishment under crime number two. That all having been said in our case here, defendant nuts Oakland County prosecution for possession of stolen firearms following her conviction uh, for the second degree home invasion in Lapeer County, it is constitutional under the same elements tests. Why? Because in Lapeer County, she was convicted of home invasion and the elements of proving her guilt were entirely different than the elements a prosecutor must prove for hiding stolen guns. So uh, perhaps said a, a bit more clearly, the elements between these two crimes are not the same. Each offense requires proof of elements that the other one does not. Because the two crimes are not at all the same, there is no double jeopardy protection which violates the Article 1, Section 15 of our Michigan Constitution. Next up, and I gotta say, I am such a sucker for United States Supreme Court cases which encounter and deal with Michigan law. But throw on top of it a double jeopardy case out of Michigan and you know I'm going to be all over this case review. And this is Evans versus the state of Michigan, an 8-1 decision by our United States Supreme Court in 2013. All right, very briefly, here's what you need to know about the case and how it made its way up to the highest court in our nation. The state of Michigan charged defendant Evans with the burning of other real property. Now, this is different than the common law crime of arson of a home. The prosecutor presented evidence at trial that Mr. Evans had burned down an unoccupied home. At the close of the prosecutor's case, the defense attorney made a motion for a directed verdict of acquittal. Specifically, the defense argued that the prosecutor failed to prove one of the four elements of the crime, the requirement that the building burned was not a dwelling house. So there's the burning of a house, and then there's the burning of a building that is not a dwelling house. The defense attorney argued that his client was being charged with the wrong crime. The defendant should have been charged with the common law version of arson, and the trial judge bought the defense attorney's argument. The prosecutor appealed the judge's acquittal to the Michigan Court of Appeals, who sided with the prosecution and overturned the trial judge's decision. The Michigan Supreme Court affirmed the Court of Appeals' reversal of defendant's acquittal. And why was that? Because the element the judge thought the prosecutor had to prove but failed to prove wasn't actually an element the prosecutor had to prove. The judge mistakenly believed a required element of the crime was not sufficiently proven by the prosecutor. But the prosecutor never actually had to prove that element, which is why the prosecutor didn't bring it up in the first place. But here we are with an acquittal by the trial court judge in favor of the defendant. So how should that be handled, the United States Supreme Court wondered? Well, they ruled on the side of defendant Evans. By an outcome of eight against one, the U.S. Supremes said the previous cases on double jeopardy define an acquittal to encompass any ruling that the prosecutor's evidence is insufficient to establish criminal liability. Uh, maybe said another way. 
an acquittal includes a ruling by the court that the evidence is insufficient to convict the defendant, particularly when there's been a factual finding that establishes the defendant's lack of culpability. And now, listeners, I hope you no doubt understand any subsequent ruling which relates to the ultimate question of guilt or innocence triggers the double jeopardy protection. Let me say that one more time. Any subsequent ruling which relates to the ultimate question of guilt or innocence triggers the double jeopardy protection. All right, so let's then now break this into more understandable pieces. This concept of double jeopardy protection is particularly significant when a defendant receives an acquittal either by a judge or a jury, doesn't matter. An acquittal given to a defendant when that acquittal is based on the merits of the case, that's going to be given absolute protection. Why? Why do we place such extreme emphasis on an acquittal? Both our Michigan Supreme Court and our United States Supreme Court have pontificated that permitting a second trial after an acquittal, no matter how mistakenly issued that acquittal may have been, would otherwise present an unacceptably high risk that the government, be it state or federal, with its vastly superior resources, might wear down the defendant so much that even an innocent defendant may be found guilty. We've talked about this before, but as a reminder, we don't want to set up a legal system where the government, traditionally the county prosecutor, can retry a criminal case over and over until he gets it just right and finally obtains a conviction against the defendant. Our court system is set up to give a prosecutor one bite at the apple and bearing any manifest necessity to issue a mistrial such that if the prosecutor fails to obtain that conviction, then that's it. Game over for the government. In our case here in Michigan, the United States Supreme Court believed it was clear. The trial court evaluated the prosecutor's evidence and determined that it was insufficient to sustain a conviction. And a court can do that. This judge granted Defendant Evans' motion under a rule which requires a court to direct a verdict of acquittal on any criminal charges when the evidence is insufficient to support a conviction against a defendant. More so, the trial judge's verbal ruling left no doubt in the minds of the eight United States Supreme Court justices that the trial judge's determination was made on the basis of testimony solicited by the prosecutor. One other important aspect the United States Supreme Court points out this acquittal was on procedural grounds. There was no tricky action taken by the defense attorney to get these charges dismissed on a legal technicality. To the contrary, an actual determination of the charges was made by the judge because the prosecutor failed to prove the case. And based on that, a judge has every right to issue an acquittal. But what about the fact the judge was wrong about what the prosecutor had to prove? Remember here, gang, this whole discussion of the judge being allowed to step in and acquit a defendant before it even goes to the jury is based on the idea that the prosecutor failed to prove every element of the charge levied against the defendant. But here, in our case, the judge was erroneously asserting an element which is not required to be proven by a prosecutor. Let me say that one more time. The judge was erroneously asserting an element which 
was not required to be proven by a prosecutor. Nor was it ever addressed by the prosecutor, and as such, the prosecutor lost the case. Said another way, there were three things the prosecutor had to prove in order to obtain a conviction for the crime being charged. Three things had to be proven. But the judge erroneously thought that there were supposed to be four things proven by the prosecutor. Now, the prosecutor, he knew he only had three things which must be shown, and as such, he addressed only those three things that he, by law, was required to prove. But it was the judge who mistakenly believed there was a fourth element which must be proven, but was not proven by the prosecutor. So, the trial judge erroneously found the defendant innocent of the crime. For what it's worth, our United States Supreme Court even said the trial judge was totally wrong. What about that? The highest court in the land said, C'est la vie. They pointed out five other United States Supreme Court cases which addressed this sort of screw-up by a judge. And in every single one of those cases... The United States Supremes held in favor of the defendant that double jeopardy still applied there as it does here in our case. They said defendant Evans' acquittal was the product of an erroneous interpretation of the law. They said it. Defendant's acquittal was the product of an erroneous interpretation of the law. But as they've said five other times, that error affects only the prosecution and the government. It does not impact negatively on the defendant. And with that, guilty defendant Evans was a free man. Like I said earlier in this case review, I really like to highlight United States Supreme Court cases which address Michigan constitutional provisions. And this was a great example and opportunity to do just that. One other thing to leave you with before we move on. If the thought of a guilty person being let go because of the screw-up of a judge, remember this. Good, bad, or otherwise... Our society values the concept that tis better a guilty person go free than an innocent person be jailed. Look, I'm not crazy about the fact that every person who is involved in this case agrees an obviously guilty person was set free because of this trial judge's screw-up. Even eight of the United States Supreme Court justices directly called out the judge for his screw-up. They said, and, and I'm quoting here from the United States Supreme Court opinion. They said, quote, there is no question the trial court's ruling was wrong. It was predicated upon a clear misunderstanding of what facts the state needed to prove under state law, end quote. I mean, holy cow, this trial judge didn't exactly fly under the radar of the nine-robed overlords of our United States Supreme Court, did they? This judge certainly got chastised by the court, by the highest court in the nation, might I add. That's not exactly the kind of shout-out a judge hopes to receive from the United States Supreme Court. Trust me when I say that every single judge writes, speaks, and analyzes legal matters as though they were the next nominee to the highest court in our land. So for this judge to be smacked around by the U.S. Supremes at least comes as a little bit of a gratification since he caused a guilty person to be let free. Our last case on the double jeopardy protection is one that is fairly indulgent on my part. 
Why? Because it addresses the idea of administrative actions taken by a state department after a criminal case against the defendant has already resulted in a conviction. This 2021, so this year, this 2021 case was addressed by the Michigan Court of Appeals between the Department of Environmental Quality and Mr. and Mrs. Gary and Tanya Sankrant. It should be noted that as of this recording, the names of the department have been changed to the Department of Environmental uh, Great Lakes and Energy, colloquially referred to as EGLE, and, or E-G-L-E, and it's pronounced as EGLE. Here's the fact pattern and trial court's procedural history to explain why the Department of Environmental Quality was involved in this local criminal matter. Our defendants are husband and wife, and they own a cabin in the woods up in Schoolcraft County in the Upper Peninsula. Now, quick side note uh, about Schoolcraft County. Even I had to Google search it to figure out where it was. It's in the Upper Peninsula. So for most of our state listeners, this will mean, most of our outer state listeners, this will mean very little to you for Michiganders. When I say it's just over the bridge and immediately to the west of and touching uh, Mackinac County, all right, now you know where it is. There was a rudimentary road which existed on the defendant couple's property. It allowed both the defendants and their neighbors to reach their own respective cabins. It is undisputed that the defendants had many problems with their neighbors and did not like the fact that the road passes very closely to their own personal cabin. So, the husband decides to install a new road on his property. But in doing so, he dredged from a wetland and placed ground, earth, dirt, choose your own term here. He placed it into that wetland, essentially filling in the wetland so he had a road upon which he could then drive. This is in violation of both federal and state laws, but he was only being charged in Schoolcraft County Court for violating the state law, which prohibited the filling in of the wetlands. The county prosecutor believed the reasoning for this illegal action was solely because of the neighbor issue, although defendant claims that he needed a new road because the other road was being repeatedly flooded by beavers. Now, hey, listen, it is the Upper Peninsula. I believe that could be a very legitimate reason, but that's not relevant to the case review here. The husband pleaded guilty to the misdemeanor charge, but his plea agreement with the prosecutor's office did not... I repeat, did not require the restoration of the wetlands back to their previous condition. After the criminal case resolved itself, the Department of Environmental Quality brought forth their own civil matter against the husband, seeking an order of restoration of the wetland and be fined for dredging that wetland. But defendant husband, he said, whoa, 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 I, I've already pled guilty for my action. Not only is fining me a violation of my double jeopardy protections against multiple punishments, he argues, but requiring me to restore the wetlands wasn't uh, something that was required of my criminal prosecution. You can't tell me to do something that the court didn't require of me, was essentially the point that the husband was making uh, in this, this civil matter being brought against him. Oh, contraire, said the Michigan Court of Appeals. They point out right from the beginning of their opinion, the action taken by the county prosecutor was a criminal matter. But this action being taken by the Department of Environmental Quality, that's a civil matter. And not only is the defendant confusing criminal matters against 
civil matters, but he's also forgetting that there are two different parties bringing forth this action. Because remember, it's the county prosecutor that's bringing the criminal charge, whereas it's the State Department that's bringing the civil action. See, during the criminal proceedings where the husband entered his guilty plea, the schoolcraft prosecutor stated, Mr. Sanskrit was pleading guilty only to the building of the road in the wetland. The prosecutor only wanted a fine levied against the defendant, not restoration of the wetlands back to their original condition. Specifically, the court stated on the record that the building of the road shouldn't have been done the way it was, but I understand why it was. If the Department of Environmental Quality, who I've spoke with, wishes to get restoration, they have options through the Attorney General's office, through the Court of Civil Complaints, and stuff in Lansing, and or the option of filing here. But that's up to them. But from my perspective, I don't think that the appropriate direction to proceed on this case. The prosecutor wanted to stay in his own lane. His sandbox to play in was the building of the road over the wetlands. He could have asked the judge for the wetlands to be restored as part of Mr. Sanskrit's uh, guilty plea, but that wasn't the desire of the prosecutor. And frankly, the prosecutor didn't even have to ask for that. I suspect that because the prosecutor didn't ask for the restoration is the only reason why the Department of Environmental Quality sought this civil matter against the defendant. I believe if the prosecutor would have required the restoration of the wetland as part of his criminal plea agreement, then it's quite likely the department probably would not have brought this case. Why? Because, well, it would have already been taken care of. If the department's goal is to have the wetlands restored back to a wetland and that was uh, satisfied through the criminal plea agreement, then why would they need to bring this case? But that wasn't what the prosecutor was seeking. So I think that's the reason why uh, the, the department brought the civil matter that they brought. Alas, the prosecutor didn't require restoration of the wetlands as part of the criminal trial. So how can the DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality, how can the DEQ bring this civil lawsuit? Well, because the law gives the DEQ that right. Remember, it's not a double jeopardy violation if it's not a criminal matter up against the same criminal matter. In our case here, this second matter isn't criminal at all. Mr. Sanskrit isn't going to jail because of the administrative matter brought forth by the department. All the department wants is for the wetlands to go back to their previous conditions and make Mr. Sanskrit pay a fine for desecrating the land. It's not a punishment in the sense of a criminal conviction resulting in the punishment of, say, jail or, or prison time. But it's still important to remember that just because the Michigan legislature calls something a civil matter doesn't mean that it's realistically a criminal punishment. You'll recall from a few podcasts back, our Michigan Supreme Court had set up a seven-factor test to determine whether a remedy in a civil case should be considered punishment for the purposes of double jeopardy. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because we've discussed this matter in the past. So I'll be brief, but... To jog your memory, here we go. Does the outcome of the civil matter result in prison time for the defendant? Not at all, said our Court of Appeals. It's silly to even have to worry about that. People do not go to jail for administrative law violations. It's just not a thing. It's not allowable, absent some add-on criminal charge. Administrative law is a civil matter, not a criminal matter. Has the action being required of the defendant been regarded historically as a punishment? Never said our court. It is viewed as an equitable remedy, 
which is to say, to restore things back to the basic status quo. Three. Does the requirement come into play if there's a finding of intentional wrongdoing? Again, no, said our court. Four. Does this requirement promote the intent of punishment as a form of retribution and deterrence? That, the court said, while the restoration order could promote the traditional punishment as a form of deterrence, the court points out all laws are designed to deter someone from doing something the government doesn't want to happen. Think about speed limit signs and the resulting speeding ticket that you receive. The goal is to have you stay at, let's say, 65 miles an hour. And if you exceed that speed, a ticket imposing a $100 or more fine is quite probable. Does the thought of paying a $100 speeding ticket deter you from speeding? Yes. Is it a punishment in the traditional sense, like jail or prison time as a deterrence? Not even close, said our court. Five. Does this requirement promote the intent of punishment as a form of retribution and deterrence? Arguably, yes. However, the outcome of the department's lawsuit won't result in jail or prison time. The action of restoring the wetland and paying a fine is not criminally punitive in nature, especially not in the context of double jeopardy criminal matters. Six. Is the prohibited action already a crime? Absolutely yes, said our Court of Appeals. This restoration of the wetlands isn't to punish the defendant, it's to get the wetlands back in their original condition. 7. Is this civil action required of the defendant an alternative reason aside from criminal punishment? Heavens no, said the court. The restoration order was not excessive in light of the alternative purpose of maintaining healthy wetlands. And for those seven aforementioned reasons, the Court of Appeals ruled that the action of restoring the wetlands back to their original condition was not a punishment in the sense of what the Double Jeopardy Clause was trying to protect against. The Double Jeopardy Clause is there to protect a person against multiple criminal punishments for the exact same criminal action. Here in our case, the action being asked by the Department of Environmental Quality was to merely restore the land and being asked to undo the harm that you've caused is not considered to be a punishment. And with that, my friends, we're going to close out the conversation on double jeopardy. Now, that's everything I think you need to know and is relevant for the purposes of a 30,000 foot overview of double jeopardy. The next topic we're going to roll into in our next couple of podcasts is going to be on bail. Now, one thing I do want to let you know is uh, Article 15 and Article 16 in our Michigan Constitution both reference bail. I've chosen to bifurcate Section 15 uh, between double jeopardy and bail, and I'm just going to roll the, the bail conversation that might be applicable in Section 15 because it's referenced there truly into podcasts on on section 16 because that that really is very much to do with bail and so you'll get plenty of conversations but don't be surprised if in the next couple podcasts if i bounce back and forth making reference to either section 15 or section 16 well now you know why it's because technically double jeopardy and bail get rolled into section 15 and then section 16 talks about bail exclusively so with that i'll talk to you next time the Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.